Welcome back to the Indotechno Podcast, Season 3, Episode 12. I'm Alan Hallowell, founder of startup consultancy Gizmo Advisors. Now, Indotechno has generally invited onto the show individuals known for their achievements as entrepreneurs or venture capitalists or academics and so on. Today's guest boasts deep experience across a number of practices with VC and company founder being just two of these roles. I first came to know him as one of the more successful VCs in the region when he was at Gui Ventures. However, in my recent interactions with him, it has been with Hiroyuki Kiga as the founder of leading fintech player Wallex. We look forward to better understanding his eclectic career. Thanks a lot for joining us, Hiro. And thank you for having me here, Alan. To be honest, I've always been wanting to be on the Indotechno podcast and was super thrilled when I got the invite from you to be part of this recording session, along with many other great speakers. It's our absolute pleasure. Now, first question, how did someone with the name of Hiroyuki Kiga end up in Indonesia? Yeah, this is always a good conversation starter in a social setting. So my dad is Indonesian, mom is Japanese. I was born in Japan, but I moved to Jakarta when I was one. So that's where I stayed until I graduated high school, spent my childhood and adolescent years in Indonesia. And looking back, I was very fortunate to be in this position because now I'm able to converse in three languages, understand cultures of both countries, which historically had had a pretty good relationship, and grateful for my parents who put me through uh, international school for a great education. I would love to be fluent in three different languages. Now, I see you went to JIS, or what I believe is now called Jakarta Intercultural School. We've had a number of JIS grads on the show who obviously went on to become leading founders within the Indonesia tech ecosystem. Did you have other classmates in your graduating class or above or below you who, like yourself, have started companies? Yes, definitely. I think as for people in my class, I would say more recently, Chris Gunawan, co-founder at Atma who recently raised a pre-seed round, if I'm not wrong. And of course, there's Eric, who was the CEO of Wersex. He didn't found the company, but he's joined recently in a senior position. But there's definitely a healthy network of just alumni amongst the tech ecosystem in Indonesia. And now that you mention it, I only realized that there's actually more people above my grade or below me who started companies. Of course, there's Kevin of Gojek, who was a guest on your show as well, Piat and Nafas. And even on the VC side, the whole Skystar guys, Geraldine and Mike, they're all alumni as well. So it's just a healthy ecosystem, a network of just alumni supporting and building out the Indonesian tech scene. Sounds quite elemental to the tech ecosystem. Now, your career stretches from Sydney to Jakarta and Singapore and on to Tokyo. Where do you see yourself settling professionally longer term and why? Definitely Singapore. Besides the proximity to many other destinations in the region, there's a usual such as ease of doing business, good infrastructure, of course, tax attractiveness. But now with my two daughters, they're six and three, I do think Singapore is an incredible environment for them. Like when I think of factors such as education, healthcare, and even things like pollution, it's a clean city. It's definitely a great place to, to raise children. 
I totally agree from one Singaporean resident to another. Now, you were a venture capitalist earlier in your career with the VC arm of Japanese gaming and social media heavyweight greed. Any specific investments that you were involved in? So when I joined, we were at the kind of tail end of investing in Bukalapak's Series A, I think mid to end 2012. And I was lucky to be involved in that process because naturally I managed the portfolio as it grew. I was also helping out with a bridge round in 2014. And this was a cool round because Nas, the East Coast rapper, came in through the intro of 500. And I was super excited because I thought I would actually be able to interact with Nas. But it was actually his fund manager that took care of the actual investment. But, you know, I think Bukalapak being the company now, it was super great to be involved with them on the early days and see them scale even during the Series A stage. Another one was one of our first exits in the region, which is Price Area, got acquired by Yellow Mobile, which is a Korean startup back then. And then I subsequently joined the Korean company to head their investments and M&A across the region. Yeah, I've noticed just over the past couple of years, a number of other film and music moguls investing in Indonesia, Jay-Z, Serena Williams, and I'm sure there's quite a few others. Actually, I wanted to ask you, what specific highlight agree do you look back upon most fondly? Perhaps not pinpointing anything specific, but it was definitely my interactions with the various founders I worked with that motivated me or that inspired me to become a founder because I've never had any startup experience. I was never able to put myself in their shoes. And it was these moments where they would ask me for advice or asking me, hey, what should I do in this situation? My thoughts are like, I don't know. And it were moments where I made it a personal mission that if I were to ever become an investor again or be a better investor, that I would have to go through the journey as a founder first. Ergo the transition. Now, what benefits does Japanese capital tend to bring to the region? Are there any good examples of significant value add that they have brought to their investee companies in Southeast Asia? I think Japanese capital were definitely one of the first foreign investors coming into Southeast Asia. A big believer in this region, internet potential. East Ventures have a very big branding in Indonesia, but their main partners are Japanese. And when I joined GRI as well, back then, we were probably one of the first in the region, along with Cyber Agents, VC Arm. So it was really these three Japanese VC firms placing bets in companies like Tokopedia, which was done by East and Cyber Agent. We had Bukalapak. And it really kickstarted the flow of foreign VCs betting on the potential of the digital economy of the region. And I think where Japanese capital added value was that they saw successful business models or at least similar business models in Japan being replicated. And so naturally, we would try to be a little bit more hands-on and guide them through what best practices are, how these business models succeeded in Japan, and how it can potentially succeed in the region as well. Of course, one of the pivotal moments, I think, is when SoftBank came in to Tokopedia. I think that was like a $100 million investment back in 2014. And that was when everybody was like, oh, it's here. It's happening. Yeah, that was quite a watershed moment. So I want to discuss a little more your move from A to B or VC to founder. Has your time in VC influenced your work as an entrepreneur? Absolutely. In fact, I think my time in VC was the main catalyst on why I decided to be an entrepreneur. 
But now after being a founder, I would like to flip it back and say my time as an entrepreneur has had significant influence on what kind of investor or VC I would definitely want to be in the future. Now, I see something called FinTech Angel Operators on your LinkedIn profile. Are you indeed a FinTech Angel investor? And can you tell us more about that? Soon to be. My goal has always been wanting to get back on the investment side. And it's definitely that I'm looking forward to do. Right now, I'm just trying to extend my network, be involved in various angel investments or investment groups, just to get a sense of what it's like out there, a feel for the ground and what the trends are. Because when you're building a company, you just focus on that. And I felt like there's a lot that I need to catch up on. And I definitely look forward to working with founders from the investment perspective and help them provide them with value add and grow the company from there early on. Understood. Now, let's move on to your life as an entrepreneur. You co-founded Wallets in early 2016. How did the idea for Wallets come into being? Initially, it started as a concept to help travelers going in and out of Singapore to easily exchange money. Hence the name Wallex, Wallet Exchange. Then it evolved into more like a FX cross-border payment idea. And when we did a sector scan of the space, it was pretty crowded, especially those doing it for domestic workers. So for the retail segment, we thought it was a crowded space. So I still remember one day I had a conversation with Neil of Coda Payments. I, I remember exactly that day. And he was like, hey, we have operating expenses in multiple countries. And we could definitely use you guys if you did provide this service for businesses. That really helped kind of validate our idea that, hey, B2B segment was the way to go because of their recurring payment needs. And the potential to further embed our solutions to other touch points within their cross-border transactions. Very interesting origin story. Now, the company critically acquired licenses early on. How did we navigate the regulatory landscape in getting the license? And what is it we need to be conscious of when speaking with regulators more generally? So we always knew that for our kind of business, we have to get the license to be able to fully operate. And that's why we applied the license quite early on. It definitely took longer than expected, but that's something that you should be conscious of that these licenses do take time to get. That also impacts your fundraising process and so forth. But once you have the license, then it's about keeping the license. It's a very different thing as well. It's a very difficult component that you need to be careful of. Because when talking with the regulators, when you have the license, it's all about making sure that you are not breaking any laws. They're especially sensitive around anti-money laundering and that you do your proper KYC, which is know your customers when you're processing payments for your end customers. So I think in our conversations with the regulators, it's always good to be open, right? Whenever you want to do something new that is outside of the scope of the business model that you submitted when you get the license, always have a conversation with them. Even a short email or notification, say, hey, we want to do this. If there's anything that you would like us to provide further, do let us know. So I think transparency, having a consistent dialogue with the regulators has been a very important factor on maintaining a good relationship with the various regulators that we are in. Now, in the more than six intervening years since founding Wallex, I assume cross-border payments has become quite a bit more competitive. What are your observations on that? Yes and no. Yes, because it's definitely become easier to add a cross-border payment 
as a service, leveraging these infrastructure guys. Name it Neom, Fumes, Rapid, so forth. This is where I see the current trend where other fintechs are using companies like us or companies like them to embed additional cross-border payment services to their existing core business. It could be other non-fintechs as well. And my no answer is because there's still room for gaining market share in, in industry-specific transactions. Just to give you an example, Flywire, which is a company out of the U.S., was built around providing cross-border payments for university students paying their school fees. Pioneer was for e-commerce. And I do see that there are still other large industries with very specialized needs. And there could be a Flywire for, say, commodities or healthcare or any of these other big industries. Understood. Now, Wallets was acquired by Singapore-based fintech company MDAC in February of this year. Tell us about that. What underpins this business combination? MDAC and Wallex, we've had an existing business relationship since about two or three years ago. This was when we were pitching for our Series A, which they ended up passing, but they were in a position to say, hey, let's get to know each other more. Why don't you do our payments for us? We can help you with the FX. So we know each other very well since then. And our teams also know their teams very well. Coincidentally, Richard, who is the founder of MDAC, his co-founder, CTO, is Noboru, who is Japanese. And at Wallex, my CEO co-founder is Singaporean, Japanese as well. So that kind of like, that alignment also was very serendipitous. And when it came to what MDAC wanted to do going forward to diversify their business, knowing what we're capable of in terms of B2B payment channels, building out effective sales force to acquire SMEs, the long-tail SMEs. I think those capabilities fit in their whole three-year IPO roadmap strategy, and we fit the puzzle to complement them. That's some great detail. I need to ask you, what is more important to the success of this transaction? Is it the personal chemistry you just talked about, or is it the business complementarity and the scope for synergies? If I had to give more weight, it would definitely be the personal fit, the cultural fit of the people. Because, of course, the business side needs to be complementary. And I particularly like the fact that we don't have competing businesses. So MDAC has been going through a transformation in the last 6 to 12 months to diversify their business. We've got acquired, so we're going through a transformation as well. And I think in terms of how our businesses and products are integrating with each other, there's definitely a lot of moving parts, but it's complementary. And as for the people element, there will be challenges. It's not an easy thing to go through an M&A or to integrate two businesses together. But as long as the people are respectful of each other, their viewpoint is not like, hey, I want to make you do this. I want to make you do that. But hey, I want to learn from you. Then there is always going to be a way forward. And I feel that the positive chemistry that we have with both MDAC and Wallix has been a very key component to making this a success. Understood. And so would love to talk about specifically the Envision synergies going forward. Can you give us some color? So the immediate synergies are MDAC has primarily been an FX powerhouse. They really know their stuff when it comes to FX. Their infrastructure is great. For us, we have B2B payment channels. We have distribution through our sales team and our SME customers. Right now, what we're trying to do, the immediate synergies are how do we offer MDAX FX capabilities to our customers? And from the MDAX side, 
how do we offer Wallex's payment capabilities and distribution capabilities to potential customers of MDAC? And I think through these combined entity, of course, there will be things that we can work together to launch together. One of the more complex elements that we're trying to figure out is that MDAC solutions has primarily been for enterprises, e-commerce giants, stock exchanges. So how do we package that and apply that to the SME segment? It's definitely challenging, but exciting at the same time. So a follow-up question there. On the spectrum between full integration on one side and full independence on the other, where does Wallex sit in this merger? Very close to full independence. Our relationship has been very healthy in the sense that within a certain framework, we have quite a lot of autonomy in what we do. Now, what have been the trickier elements of PMI or post-merger integration? One of the key components of this acquisition is how do we cross-sell our products? As I mentioned, the synergies are apparent, but we both cater for very different customer segments. And that very large, ours is an SME. So how do we offer our products to enterprise customers? How do we offer MDEX products naturally for enterprise to the SME? That's where the trickier components of the PMI is. But as I mentioned, I think when it comes to making this work, the integration of the people becomes important because if you have a great cultural fit and both sides want to make this work together, then there's a path forward. Makes sense. Now, I'm familiar with names such as Airwallex, Neum, and others. Who is our competition currently? Where do we compete with them directly? And what areas do we uniquely serve? I'll speak on this on behalf of Wallex. As for Wallex, the main competitors that we still see in the market when we speak to potential customers is still the traditional guys, American Express, Western Union Business Solutions, and the banks, especially for Indonesia. I would say within the wider cross-border payment infrastructure competitive landscape, I think we have a pretty decent foothold on really servicing the SME segment. I would say the DMs is a bit more enterprise now. They're providing infrastructure on cards and the cross-border payments. AirWallex has primarily been strong in servicing China, e-commerce. And the other guys that we hear about, the other startups in the space, are also servicing more of the retail payments. They focus on optimizing payment channels, cash pickup, drop-off points for very small value but high-frequency payments. So where we fit in is really the B2B because our kind of transaction profile is very different from what these guys handle. So I think that's where we sit in terms of the competitive landscape of the sector. Hiro, would you recommend becoming a founder to a venture capitalist? What's the best advice you could give a VC considering this? My answer is yes, because I think one of the critical skills that I lacked as a VC was being able to empathize with the founders. Founders will give you a monthly update and so forth, try to paint the good news, but there are a lot of times where they're not doing well. And I think it's those moments that a VC would need to be able to understand, put yourself in the founder's shoes and really try to help and give support in any way. And also when evaluating companies, right? There's a lot of things that I think investors don't really see, like the nitty gritty stuff. And being able to understand that component of how the business is operating will definitely be helpful when you're speaking to founders as well. Really admire this decision you've made to jump from VC to startup life. It can't be an easy transition, but 
it clearly has been rewarding just listening to you. Thanks so much for sharing your story today. And thank you as well for having me here, Alan. Good speaking to you. You're very welcome. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indo Techno podcast with us. Terima kasih. Sampai jumpa lagi.